I was thinking about how much we sing, and we don't sing in Sunday school, and we don't sing Wednesday night or Wednesday morning. So I'd like to sing more. So we're gonna we're having five songs now instead of four before the message, and uh, I'm sure you saw it on the screen. Uh, it was announced that uh, Collinsville Bible Church, our uh, close sister church, is having a sing inspiration. Let me encourage you to put that on your calendar for March 11th. It's only two weeks from yesterday, uh, from 6:30 to 8. But they've invited five churches to uh, to join and to sing God's praises and testimonies. Uh, so if, if that works in your schedule, 6:30 to 8, uh, two weeks from yesterday, um, you can join us at Collinsville Bible Church. You can look it up. It's easy to find about 10 minutes from here. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. You may know verse 9, and uh, we're going to get to verse 9. But before then, we need to think of this thought. All God's people suffer. You think through the stories of the Old Testament... All God's people suffered. Abraham suffered, could not have children with Sarah. Jacob suffered. Um, And then we get into Moses, had to flee, thought he was going to deliver the Israelites at age 40 and didn't start delivering them till age 80. And that 40 years was a time of suffering. The children of Israel in the years of captivity, they suffered. God's people suffered uh, throughout the Old Testament. Suffering is part of life. The problem, I think, with a very prosperous culture, we think something's wrong when there's suffering. Things that we have, to, we can't have any pain. I mean, there, I mean, you can't have pain now. There is some medicine that will take away the pain, that will dull the pain. Uh, and so we expect a life that is pain-free. But this is a fallen planet. Uh, the longer we live, the more we realize there's pain. All God's people have pain, just like the rest of the world has pain. And we all expect, should expect to suffer. It's not a matter of if, but how we suffer. That God wants us to suffer differently then the, then the world suffers. Now we have seen last week in 2 Corinthians 11 that Paul went through his share of suffering for the ministry. He had the shipwrecks and the beatings and the being stoned um, and all those things that he suffered as well as emotional suffering for the churches, uh, concerned about them and realizing he was weak and... Um, He was angry at times when the Christians that he helped uh, to establish their churches were getting uh, falling into sin. And he know we have seen in the Corinthian letters that he was grieved over their sin. And so he has uh, encouraged us to know how to minister. Now we're getting to the end of this book of ministry. And we have just two more weeks, and then we'll get into Mark's gospel of the crucifixion and the resurrection leading up to Easter. So we're, what, six weeks away from Easter right now, and it's a pretty exciting time in the life of our church. But we need to think about ministry and suffering. 
Paul tells us here at the beginning of verse 1, I must go on boasting. He says that, and then he doesn't, he doesn't really boast uh, anymore uh, in, in particular about his, his revelations. But why do we need this passage? As we suffer while serving Jesus, God knows what we need most. God always knows what we need most. And we'll see in this passage what all of us need for salvation, also what we need most when we suffer. We sang about it, and hopefully those songs will resonate in your mind and be brought back to your memory and your vocal cords this week, and you can hum along uh, and think of the lyrics that we sang this morning. But Paul's going to uh, mention, go on boasting, but it's not in the foolishness that he mentions um, back in, as a madman, back in 2 Corinthians 11. It's a more serious tone here, and he says, though therefore there is nothing to be gained by it, by the boasting, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And now he talks in the third person, although this likely is him. He says, I know a man in Christ. So this is someone who is a Christian. Every time we see, and, and we'll see it throughout the rest of the New Testament, that the position of the Christian is in Christ. There's, it's a very secure position. And Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, so closer to his salvation than he is in writing this, this man 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. This is, the atmosphere could be the first heaven, uh, many believe, and the outer space, uh, the universe that we can see is the second heaven. The third heaven is, is reserved for, this is the throne of God. This is the place where God dwells. Paul, in Christ, was caught up to the third heaven. And he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. He doesn't know if his body was taken or just he had this vision of, of heaven. But he says, God knows, verse 3. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Another parallel for the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. So if you were listening to Paul or read this and Paul came back to your church and you got to sit with Paul at lunch, would you say, Paul, what did you see? Tell us what you saw, Paul. Were you in the body or out of the body? Come on, you say you don't know, but what's your feeling? And he would say, I wrote it. <laughs> I don't know. And if you want to sit with Paul at a fellowship lunch, in Corinth, and find out what the third heaven is like, what paradise is like. He says here in verse 4, and he heard, this is still him, heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except my weaknesses. It's almost like he's got a Split personality here. Like he's talking about this guy who goes up to heaven in the body, out of the body, doesn't know. 
Uh, he, he sees and hears things, heard things that he can't, he can't repeat. He said, I, I could boast about that guy, what that guy did, was able to see. But I'm going to be over here, and I'm going to, what's he say in verse 5? We have that man I will boast, but no, on my own behalf, I'll not boast, except of my weaknesses. So he starts with a glorious revelation. And he's leading us, though, away from that glory, glorious revelation to weaknesses. Like, what? Paul, just get to heaven. Tell us about what you saw there. That's what we all want to know. And that's not the point of this passage about what's in heaven. That's elsewhere in Scripture. But here, we're seeing something about weaknesses and suffering. The first thing we'll see in the first eight verses of the ten is God is the sovereign. What is God allowing or not allowing in this passage up to this point so far? God is not allowing Paul to know whether he was in the body or out of the body. He's not allowing him to know that. Paul's not lying. He's not manipulating people here in writing. He's just telling you the truth. He doesn't know if his body was taken up. So God is sovereign over who gets to be taken up to heaven and see what. And then who gets to come back from heaven and what is he allowed to speak? And according to this passage, what is Paul allowed to say? Nothing. He goes to the third heaven. He goes to paradise. Throne of God. Innumerable number of angels. We have this from other passages of Scripture, but not this one. And he gets back from heaven, and he's not even boasting about his privileged trip. What are we to learn from this? God is sovereign in what we are allowed to see in ministry. What are we allowed to see in ministry? There are people that have quit their job and have their whole life in ministry is Heaven is for Real. You probably have heard of that book. It sold over 11 million copies. Someone here at church years ago asked me about this book, so I looked into it. A three-year-old has an emergency appendectomy, and while uh, I'm, we're glad he survived, but while under anesthesia and um, in the hospital, claims to have gone to heaven and uh, tells his parents when he wakes up from surgery what he sees there. I've heard a lot of positive <laughs> about this book, but I don't really care for the title. Heaven is for real because a three-year-old went there and told us about it. How do we know heaven's for real? Because God tells us about it. And if the Apostle Paul goes to the third heaven 
and comes back and he's not allowed to speak about it. Do you think God's going to have a three-year-old come back from heaven and be able to tell, tell you everything he saw if he's obeying and pleasing God? Or other people like Don Piper, who is a false teacher, who has a book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, maybe a movie with it too. God doesn't allow false teachers to go to heaven and then tell us about it. Why? Because God doesn't use false teachers to share truth. False teachers, as we just saw in 2 Corinthians 11, tell us a false Jesus, a false spirit, and a false gospel. And we can analyze someone's teaching about Jesus and the spirit and the gospel and say, this doesn't match up. But people by the millions are buying this book and other books like it. It's a hot topic. It's been a hot topic for about 20 years from what I can tell. And people want more revelation than this. That's the problem. We're not given more revelation about heaven. There's a little bit about heaven that we know for sure, and all of it comes from right here. Anyone, whether you're a brain surgeon, and I did some research this week, there's a brain surgeon that supposedly went to heaven. He comes back. False teachers are going to heaven now, and they're coming back, and they've got ministries. And their whole ministry is based on this trip to heaven. They're never going to stand where I'm standing as long as I live, and I'm the pastor here, because they're false teachers. They can write elaborate stories, but it's all baloney. All of it. It is not spiritual meat. We don't need someone. And I looked at this website, Heaven for Life website, where now this family goes around and speaks about heaven is for real. And they've quit their jobs, and this is their whole life and ministry is this. And there's a question and answer. What did he see? You know what? I'm not going to ask a three-year-old what he saw. How many other three-year-olds give us revelation from God in Scripture? How many 13-year-olds give us revelation from God in Scripture? None. Jesus even, and he's a 12-year-old, gives us just a few lines in Luke 2. And Paul when he is first a believer, he writes no scripture without 14 years of training. Even though he is a believer, he knows the truth, he is taken away and has a lot of training before he is allowed to write scripture. We have to use discernment. We cannot follow people who talk Christianese today and be fooled into thinking they really went to heaven and they're going to tell me things that aren't that Paul wasn't allowed to say. No. Absolutely not. So don't buy it. If you have it, burn it. Don't even give it away. It's not worth the page. It's not worth kindling. It really, that's what, I, that's what I think of it, okay? That's what God thinks of it. Because of this, this passage talks about suffering. And it talks about if Paul can't tell you what's in heaven... John is allowed to say things 
Daniel's not allowed to say things. He was allowed to write, but it had to be sealed up. And where Daniel and Paul and John, what they're allowed to write is all that God wants us to know about heaven until we get there. So don't be fooled. Don't buy the books. Don't listen to the ministries. Don't watch the YouTube videos. They're a waste of time. God is sovereign over what we are allowed to see. We have to be content with that. And we'll see the word contentment later. Verse 7. So, based on this wonderful experience that Paul got to enjoy, but he's not allowed to talk about it. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, thinking more of himself than he ought to think. That's what conceited, proud is. And he says here it's a messenger of Satan, but he also realizes God has sent this or allowed this messenger of Satan to harass Paul. And God has allowed Paul to understand, similar to Job, what Job could not understand, that it was Satan behind his, his suffering. Paul is allowed to know that his suffering, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh is, there's a lot of ideas, but you know what? If we needed to know, we'd know. I think it's broad enough to know it was, it was pain. It was painful. It was a daily occurrence that made life a little more challenging for Paul than someone who didn't have it. Okay, that's all we know. So it's not valuable to speculate what it is because if God wanted us to know what it is, he would have told us, and he doesn't. So he's like, okay, this is a thorn in the flesh. Something about his body that was Satan allowed to harass him, and he knows the purpose behind this suffering. Verse 7, to keep him from becoming conceited. It says it twice, beginning of the verse, end of the verse. So what do we conclude? God is sovereign. God is sovereign over what he allows us to endure. And now as Paul is suffering, and he knows why he's suffering, but if you were being kept from being conceited, what would your prayer look like? Be like, okay, God, I learned the lesson. I'm not going to boast. I'm not going to say anything about being taken up to the third heaven. God, can you take this thorn away from me now? I promise I won't boast. I won't boast. And God says, that's what Paul says three times. Verse 8. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. God, I... Don't you know I've suffered enough, God? I got this list of suffering in chapter 11 of, of serving you. And in addition to everything outside, everybody's trying to kill me. And the church is weighing on me. I've got this additional thorn in the flesh that's causing me to suffer. God, can't you take it away now? I won't become conceited. I won't get proud. And three times he asked this, and three times he may have gotten this answer. And Paul has direct revelation from God. And if you have a red-letter Bible, it's quoted in red here in my Bible to stand out like this is what God, the Son, 
who Paul was persecuting, who now he is giving his life to serve. And Paul is given this response. My grace is sufficient for you. That word sufficient is just enough. There's enough. There's enough grace, Paul. And it's, it's, it's directed toward you. God knows what you suffer. God allows you to suffer. Now, there are a lot of false teachers that think God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. No pain. You know what? Those people suffer. And while they're walking billboards for not suffering, they're suffering and they, they die. And their ministries should be exposed as false. They deceive millions. Still. People need an accurate view of what God has said and what He hasn't said. And God is the sovereign over our lives, especially those in ministry. And what He allows us to see and what He allows us to say, also in what He allows us to endure in suffering. We know that God elsewhere will not allow us to be tempted more than we're able. He'll always give us a way to escape. That's also in um, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. But God is the sovereign over our suffering. And as we plead with the Lord to not suffer physically... Or Paul could also talk about, uh, he's pleading with the Lord uh, previously about his other weaknesses, about how he can't be everywhere and help every church and handle all the problems in all the churches that he's helping to establish. He just can't be everywhere at once, and he feels the frustration of ministry. He has to trust a sovereign Lord. God's grace is sufficient for Paul. So it sounds like after three times, he doesn't say four. He doesn't say five. After three, you know what I think happens to Paul? He stops asking. Why? We'll find out. He realizes, here's the answer that God wants me to have. It's not relief from my pain. It is grace to endure the pain. Grace that is enough, it is sufficient for me personally. And then a teaching opportunity. You know when we suffer, maybe not in the middle of intense suffering, but while we suffer, while suffering is fresh in our mind, we are teachable. This is how God gets our attention often with suffering. And as we suffer under the sovereign control of our loving, gracious Father, who could take it away. And he says, no, no, no. I'll give you something better than relief. I'll give you grace. A grace that is enough for you. A grace that is teaching you something teaching Paul, it's going to teach us now. What is it teaching us in the middle of verse 9? 
for my power. That is, Jesus still talking. What is parallel in this verse to power in the first phrase? It's the grace. Grace is power. For by grace we are saved through faith. How much power does it take to rescue a condemned sinner from hell and make them a child of God? How much grace? Only God's grace. We can't save ourselves because we don't have enough power. But God has all the power to save us. He also has power in Titus to sanctify us, to teach us, to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. That is God's power at work in us to change us to become more and more like our Savior. And when we suffer, we don't want the suffering. Give me relief. Give me relief. Give me relief. And God says, I got something better than relief. It's my grace. It's more grace that you need. And suffering is a teacher by a sovereign God to help us to learn a valuable lesson. God's grace is sufficient for us too. Not just for Paul in the first century to keep him from boasting and becoming proud. God wants us to trust him. So trust his, his sovereign grace as sufficient for our trials. That's the first part of what Jesus says. My grace is sufficient for you. So if we take that, we'll say, okay, God, I don't understand why you don't take this away. Like I see you taking it away from other people, but not me. And I'm suffering and they're not. Well, they're suffering something different that you might not see, but everyone's suffering. And God's sufficient grace is perfectly available for all his, all his people, all his followers. And they're learning. They're, we're all learning to trust that God's grace is sufficient. So instead of looking for relief after asking and asking and asking, we take no for an answer and we start trusting his grace. And we're asking for grace now instead of relief because we're realizing God, this is what God wants for our lives to suffer, but suffer with us by giving us power. My grace is enough for you, he says. And then the second phrase, my power is made perfect in weakness. What we expect is my power is made perfect in strength. God, give me strength. We pray for strength. We pray for other people for strength. But instead, I think our prayers need to be informed by this verse that we need to pray that believers will trust in God's grace and His power would be made perfect in their weakness. Oh, no, not weakness. Take the weakness away. That's not what happens here. The weakness stays with Paul. The pain stays there in his body, likely the rest of his days. And he learns from a sovereign teacher what sufficient grace looks like every single day. And he learns to trust a sovereign, loving teacher who is giving grace to him to overcome his desire for relief and making him content with 
the grace that's available to him through his Savior. And learning this, that God's power, Christ's power in ministry, which we have seen before, the power that is divine power that pulls down strongholds and things that uh, deceive us and things that um, we are falling into temptation. Now here it is, God's power that is made perfect in weakness. God's power helps us grow in our weakness. Does this match what else he has said already in 2 Corinthians 4? That our light momentary affliction is but for a moment, but it works in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory? Yes! God's power, God's grace in our affliction is working through us so that we take our eyes off of relief and we put our eyes where they need to be on our sovereign teacher. And we stop asking and demanding at times, God, if you are a good God. No, that's how unsaved people talk to God. Christians don't talk to God if. If you love me. No, 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 we don't talk to God this way. We don't demand that God follow our ways. Instead, we trust his ways. And trusting his ways is easy when his way is good and pleasant and smooth. But it's difficult with a thorn in the flesh that is not ever promised to be gone, that we're going to have to live with. And understanding this, this is not <laughs> beginning level Christianity. This is next level. And this isn't at the very first thing that Paul says to the Corinthians. This is near the end of his second lengthy letter. He says this, My power, Christ's power, is made perfect in weakness. Are you trusting God's grace? Are you trusting God's ways? God doesn't need a strong, healthy, physical body for any one of us here, for us to serve Him. God is okay if we have pain and grief and sorrow, and He still wants to use us. He doesn't need a perfect life. In fact, there aren't any perfect lives. The only perfect life that was ever here, we put him on a cross. And all, we, all God works with now, as we know from 1 Corinthians 1, all he uses is weak people to confound those who are strong. God uses foolishness and foolish people to confound those who are wise. And when God uses weak people, who gets the glory? not weak people. When Paul gets taken up to heaven and sees things, who gets the glory for that? Not Paul. He's not even allowed to tell what he sees. He can't get any glory. He can't write any books. He can't make millions. No, we trust God's ways. Paul has these un unordinary um, extraordinary, supernatural revelations that he mentions back in verse 1. Visions, revelations, privileges that all of us would love to have seen what Paul seen. To be revealed by the Lord to us like it was revealed to Paul. But it's not 
God's ways right now. And the minister that God used to pen First and Second Corinthians and then Romans and then the other, many of the other books of the New Testament had some physical weakness that was not going away. And he had to learn, as we have to learn, that God's grace is sufficient for him. His power, God's power is made perfect in weakness. Okay, verse 9a, this is all 9a, is worth memorizing and meditating on day and night. This is one of those verses, half of a verse, that you've got to have with you when you suffer. Because if it's not memorized and it's not meditated on, when you and I suffer, we're going to ask God three times, we're going to ask God 30 times, we're going to ask God 3,000 times, take this away, take this away, take this away, take this away, take this away. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you too. You say, I don't want your grace, God. I want you to take it away. You're in a dangerous position. Demanding something of the Almighty that is natural, but we don't live in the natural realm as Christians. We help each other to trust God's grace and to trust His ways. And how can God use weakness with His grace? It's not... See, Paul doesn't get any glory when God uses his weak body now. And God doesn't... God gets the glory when he uses us, despite our weaknesses, to minister to other people who are weak. Other people who are in pain. And they're not getting any relief from their pain either. And they don't have God's grace. And we tell them how to get God's grace. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And as you get God's grace... He expects you to dispense God's grace in Ephesians 4 by not allowing any corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only what is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to those who hear. And when we demand of God, even in prayer, that's corrupt communication. shouldn't be coming out of our mouths. We trust God, His grace. We trust His ways, that His power is made perfect in weakness. So what is Paul's response from 9b and 10? And we're done. This is how we need to respond. If you didn't get 9a, memorize it, meditate on it. Go back to this and, and uh, listen to it. Uh, I'm sure there's probably someone else out there that's a better preacher than me. I know there is. <laughs> They'll do a better job at explaining that. So he's the sovereign. He's a sovereign teacher, and here we are at Jesus' feet, and we're learning. And he's taught us what we need for our thorn in the flesh. We may have limped, or we're struggling to see, or we're struggling with whatever physical problem or pain that makes it hard to serve God, hard to keep going. We want to give up. And God says, no, I'll decide when uh, it's your time to give up. But until then, my grace is sufficient for you, and you'll learn that my power is made perfect in, in your weakness. So then we have a therefore. All right, so Paul's going to say, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly. 
And gladly is in the Greek. It's an interesting word. Rejoicing and gladly boasting with a smile on my face of my weaknesses. So here is someone with a thorn in the flesh who God says, no, I'm not taking it away. Instead, I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you grace. And you're going to have to, you will endure. And if you're my follower, I will give you more and more and more grace. And it'll be enough for you. You're going to be growing spiritually, even though your body is weak. And Paul says, okay, deal. Therefore, I will gladly, more, all the more gladly, boast in my weaknesses. And this makes no sense to the natural person. And 1 Corinthians 2 says, yeah, the natural man doesn't get the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. And when you boast in your weakness today, the world and all those flowery Christians that want a good feeling and a pain-free life, they look at you like you've got three heads. Like, what are you doing? You've just sat at the sovereign teacher's feet and he's taught you what you need to know to endure life with pain. And you walked away from that training session having learned it and now you're starting to practice it. So day in and day out, Paul wakes up and he's not begging God for relief anymore. He is gladly, all the more gladly, whistling, humming, encouraging others. Hey, there is grace available. And he might be limping. He might be having trouble seeing whatever it is, the thorn in the flesh. And why is he doing this? Why are you doing this, Paul? Why are you gladly, all the more gladly, boasting in your weaknesses? No one does this. Well, no one who doesn't know Christ does this, but we who know Christ can and should. Verse 9 concludes, so that the power, here's the purpose, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If God says the way for you to grow is to get more grace, and that that grace is going to be sufficient, so you're not even going to be worried about your physical problems, that you're going to be so focused on getting grace from God and serving God with the grace and the weakness that he allows in your body isn't a big deal at all. It's not the focus of your attention. You're not getting together and talking with people about your medicine and your therapies and your techniques to get through the day. Um, You're talking about the grace of God. This is where God wants us to be as a church gathers his people and we sing about his grace and we talk about his grace and we help those who can't see his grace because they're struggling with pain and weakness and we gather around them and we pray for them and say keep your eyes on Christ he is the author and finisher of your faith what he started in you he'll complete it I know it's hard right now when you're his follower he will give you all the grace just humble yourself trust him trust his ways there will come a day for all eternity, there will no, be no more pain, no more tears. Until that day, God's going to give us enough grace to get through the day. So we gladly boast in weaknesses. 
If you watch sports, no one boasts in weaknesses. I'm lousy at shooting threes. I can't kick a field goal to save my life. Uh, you don't hear people talk like that. They're like, no, they only talk about what they're good at. When you're told to go to an interview, you're, you're told to say all of your strengths and try to keep your weaknesses hush hush so you can get the job. No, we gladly boast in our weaknesses. Verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then. For the sake of Christ? Christ gets glory when he uses weak things with his power. When he uses weak vessels, weak people, people in pain. And despite the pain, they're still serving him. They're still gladly serving him. And they're trusting his power to use even their weak body. And he says here in verse 10, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is the opposite true for us as Christians? When you think you're strong, actually might be weak. Yeah, it says that elsewhere. Take heed lest you fall if you think you stand. Think you're a strong Christian? Take heed lest you fall. But here he says, when I'm weak, ah, then I am strong. So who can be strong as a Christian? Everybody you realize you're weak. One of my favorite teachers said, there are two types of people in the world, those who know they're weak and those who don't know they're weak. That's all. There's not a third category of strong people. There aren't any strong people. I don't care how much they boast about themselves, how much they blame others for their problems or their bad decisions. There are two types of people in the earth. What makes us weak? The fall. Sin. We're all sinners. You show me you're strong and don't sin, and I'll believe you. If you sin, you're with me. We're all weak. And we need Christ's grace to save us. We also need Christ's grace to help us and to teach us. So he says here, I gladly, in verse 9, all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses so that Christ's power rests upon me, that I just always have it. And then I'm content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. Everything that we want to get out of, Paul says, I'm content in those things. Why? Because of the beginning of verse 10, it's for the sake of Christ. If Christ wants me to share the gospel in this city, and that city is going to have someone that beats me almost to death, and yet Christ's grace is going to be with me while I'm getting beaten, stoned, dragged around, put in a dungeon. I'm there. Sign me up. I'll go. Why? Because he knows the power of grace. That we marvel at people that go to hard-to-reach places. But they know God's grace often better than us. They're humble, and they're willing to do whatever God wants them to do. So we pleasantly, we are pleasantly content. There is, 
not here this idea of pleasantly content, but that's in this word content as well. Rejoicing or pleasantly content with weaknesses. Uh, Still, the smile is on the face. You see the gladly in verse 9. You see the pleasant contentment here of verse 10. This is not a resentment of God. I got a bad deal. This is how you treat your servants, God? Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) That's not it. These people are smiling. Paul is smiling as he suffers. We gladly boast in our weaknesses because Christ's power is with us. And then for Christ's sake, we're pleasantly content with all sorts of trials. Because we know at the end, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And when I am weak physically, my God, my Savior, gets all the glory for what he accomplishes with this weak body. So Christ gets the most glory for powerfully and wisely using suffering people. If you're not there, you say, this is a hard thing to to learn. Memorize and meditate. And the purpose of meditation is to think about all the different aspects and, and what it looks like and what does it mean. And then what does it mean for me and my suffering And think that you're sitting at Jesus' feet and he's telling you verse 9a, the first part of 9, and he's wanting you to get it. He wants you to sit there with a scowl on your face and I don't like this and God, you can take this away. I don't know why you're allowing me to, oh, okay. And the light bulbs come on and you meditate on God's word until you realize this is a big, big deal. There's a big picture here that I'm only seeing this little suffering that I'm doing and why God's allowing me to go through my little suffering when he's got a big plan for that. It's about his glory. I uh, read this this week. This is a very intimidating long book. All right. 16 pages. It says, don't waste your cancer. Um, I will give you a copy of this if you are struggling and uh, but I want to talk with you before I give it to you so I have some of these available I bought some more of them actually this week um, don't waste your cancer John Piper uh, helps and he had cancer um, and talks about how to you waste your cancer let me just give you one example if you think that beating cancer is the goal no keeping your eyes on Christ is the goal so cancer wins if, if um, not if we lose, if we lose our life. No, cancer wins if we take our eyes off of Jesus while we suffer. And so this is, I'm going to broaden this to say don't waste your pain. Okay, so if you're in pain, um, if you have someone that you want to minister to, I would not encourage you just to give this to them. Read it first. You think about it and think if it's appropriate uh, to give them. That's why I'm not just going to set these out and let you grab one. I'd like to shepherd you a little bit uh, through, uh, through that. But that's available um, if um, you would talk to me. All right, application and we're done. Will you praise him? Because we see here, therefore, in verse 9b and 10, is some glad praise, pleasant contentment. So what are we going to do? with this passage. Will you plan to gladly rejoice in, your, in our sovereign God allowing trials? 
If you're not in a trial, you will be. If you don't have a plan, so when I go through a trial, I'm going to plan to gladly rejoice. Say, I don't want to gladly rejoice. Okay, 9A, memorize it, meditate on it. It'll help you. Learn. Uh, Learn to trust God, trust his grace, trust his ways. Second question, will you endure trials? So now you're in the trial. Not plan to, but now you're in the trial. Will you endure trials with asking God to get glory through it? He'll give you grace. He'll give you all the grace you need so that when you get through it, when you're enduring it, you can keep your eyes fixed on Christ and you can point others while they're in a similar trial to keep their eyes on Christ too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth from your word. I pray that you would help us now to memorize your word, meditate on it day and night. Transform us into the image of our Savior. Conform us to look more, less like the world and more like Christ. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help our relationships with each other and ultimately with Christ to grow so strong during our our trials, during our weakness. Help us to cling to him knowing that he will hold us fast. He will give us all the grace we need because you're a good God. You're a gracious God. You know what we need and when we go through trials, we need trials. And Help us to trust you and to learn from you and then use us in ministry as you use Paul and many others through church history. Use us now in our day to minister to those around us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.